J.J. Abrams' The Force Awakens is not the best Star Wars film, but it was released at one of the best times in my life, when I was studying journalism at the University of Oregon in Eugene. It was my first time living away from my hometown, Portland, Oregon, and I was ecstatic. Living in a city where I barely knew anybody often made me feel lonely, but there were upsides to my isolation, including being able to dash to a movie theater to see The Force Awakens for a second, third, or fourth time without family or friends giving me uncomprehending looks. I wasn't wild about the movie, but for a fan who came of age during the prequel generation, being able to go to a theater and see Han Solo and the Millennium Falcon loom larger than life was a gift. The staff at Regal Valley River Center probably got sick of me galumphing up to the ticket booth in my biking gear, and giddily saying, One for The Force Awakens. The last time I saw The Force Awakens on a screen larger than my television was when an on-campus organization called Ducks After Dark screened the film. There was free popcorn, and at well-chosen moments, the death of Han, the duel between Rey and Kylo Ren, one audience member ignited a toy lightsaber. That night, I didn't care about the many ways in which I felt the movie was disappointing. All that mattered was that Star Wars was back. Welcome to Bespin Ice Cream Stand. My name is Joshua Rourke, and with me as always, the murderer, traitor, and thief I call friend, Bennett Campbell Ferguson. I'm just going to start with it. Uh, I give Star Wars The Force Awakens three out of four stars. I think it's a hell of a lot of fun, and it feels like a Star Wars movie, whatever that means. Uh, It's humorous, it's got cool action sequences, Sets up some great characters and relationships, even if the trilogy doesn't always deliver on those promises. Yeah, I, I think you highlight a lot of stuff that's great about the film, and there is a lot of great stuff. For me, I'm going to go a half star under that. I'm going to go two and a half stars. I, I think there are a lot of things that get it close to three for me. I think Daisy Ridley and John Boyega and Adam Driver and Harrison Ford all give wonderful performances. I think the cinematography by Dan Mandel is beautiful. There's a couple great action sequences, uh, especially the duel with Rey and Kylo at the end and the Falcon flying through the crash Star Destroyer. And and even uh, Finn dueling the Stormtrooper, who uh, I know he has an official name, but it, we, we like to call him uh, T-R-A-R, traitor, because <laughs> that's a lot more fun. I, I I think what keeps it from three stars for me is that I have a lot of affection for J.J. Abrams because he made one of my all-time favorite films, the 2009 Star Trek. But I disagree a little bit with his approach to Star Wars. Actually, I disagree a lot. He often talked about how he really wanted to do something that felt like Star Wars. And I get that impulse, but I feel that you, he could still have done something that felt like Star Wars while being a little bit fresher. Because you look at you know a movie, a franchise movie that came out the same year as The Force Awakens, Mad Max Fury Road. You know George Miller with that film specifically said he wanted to do something more like The Road Warrior. And with Fury Road, 
he did deal with a lot of the same themes, but he made it feel fresh because the road warrior hadn't had characters like Furiosa or Nux. The road warrior hadn't been, you know, just one long movie length car chase the way Fury Road is. So he was able to do something that was familiar and revolutionary. Whereas I, I feel like the force awakens has the problem of feeling a bit like star Wars Mad Libs, like insert orphan from the desert here insert droid with valuable information here insert x-wing flying through a trench here and i feel like you can do something that feels like star wars with just without just like mimicking a new hope beat by beat and so i, I see this as someone who like has seen the movie many many times and enjoys it a lot and thinks it has some wonderful characters and contributed a lot of great iconic things to star wars i, I just feel that the familiarity is a blip and with a little more freshness it could have gone i think from being pretty good to being you know right up in the upper echelon of star wars yeah i agree i mean that that's my biggest criticism is that they're basically taking all the great beats of the original trilogy and putting it into the movie and essentially like you said recreating a new hope like the lone person on a planet, the vital droid information, the Death Star, the countdown at the end. Oh my God, we're all going to get blown up. Oh wait, no, we're not because we blew up the Death Star. <laughs> you know, the end. Um, I, I think it really sets up a lot. And I think if the other two movies went a different way, it, it would it would be really perfect. Uh, I, I like it. it. It's The reason I like it is that in Indefinable, it feels like Star Wars. For me, it was like after the prequel trilogy, I sort of didn't care about Star Wars that much. And watching, you know, Force Awakens kind of reignited that feeling uh, for me, for sure. Uh, recognizing that it's a, you know, a committee made movie that is just a giant nostalgia machine that's trying to get me to buy, you know, its merchandise. I think I like it because when I revisit it, it still um, holds up. Other than, uh, and, and this is more a problem with modern action movies, I think all the action scenes are way too long. Uh, even when there are stakes, even when you care about the characters, the scenes just play way too long uh, for my taste compared to you know any of the other Star Wars movies really before it. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting what you're getting into, Josh, because there's a, a texture to this film that is so intensely identifiable. I mean, just watching the other day, I was again struck by that moment where BB-8 is rolling through the desert and that goofy old puppet with the glowing eyes pops up out of the sand. It <laughs> feels so much like something that would have been outside of Jabba's palace in Return of the Jedi. You know, there's that little bit of that old school geek out where it's like, oh my God, or or the Falcon flying away from Jakku. And it's like, oh man, the, the Falcon, you know, flying away from a desert planet. And it looks, it, I don't know if that shot was CGI or what, but the way it looks, it looks like a model. Again, it yeah. has that tactile feeling. The whole thing has a very tactile feeling because especially after the prequels, it feels very, you know, loose and real and human and, off the cuff and if you listen to the audio commentary for the film there was a lot of reshoots and i i don't think that's i 
like you know, I definitely, I, I'm not you know someone who thinks reshoots are inherently a good thing or inherently a bad thing. You know, research shoots are or are not necessary depending on the director's process. And J.J. Abrams comes from the world of television where there's a, a little bit more room for spontaneity, arguably at times. And so it was interesting to talk about things like how in the original version they shot the dynamic between Ray and Kylo, or, or excuse me, Ray and Finn was more adversarial and they made it a bit more playful in the mm -hmm. final version that they shot and they changed some stuff with Han and Leia as well. And so I, I think there's a lot of life to the movie that had been missing, certainly, you know, during the prequel era. Yeah, I agree. And, and you kind of see it in the, in the dialogue. It's more reminiscent of the original trilogy, which we just finished watching, you know, the past few weeks. Um, it, it, there are, there were moments like, uh, you know, the, the moment with, uh, Poe and Finn where he said, you know, why, why are you doing this? Why are you helping me? And Finn says, it's the right thing to do. And Poe says, you need a pilot. I need a pilot. Yeah. <laughs> like that kind of stuff is, is perfect. It really reminds me of, of like old Star Wars or um, new Star Trek. You know, the, it reminds me a lot of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, um, in a way. But I don't think it's too clever for its own good, whereas that, that's sort of the danger uh, that that the next one kind of falls into, I think. Yeah, the, the humor is a very, very fine line. I think definitely some films in the sequel trilogy walk it better than others. The, the Force Awakens, I feel like, got the humor spot on. With The Last Jedi, the humor got very, very self-conscious, very, very meta. And, and then by the time you're getting into the rise of Skywalker and you have a, a flashlight lightsaber joke, by that time it was like, oh my god, can we please not? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like Star Wars should not be self-conscious star wars should not be this kind of postmodern thing where it's like wink wink it's star wars no star wars should just be it should just exist and not try too hard to be clever it should feel timeless and that i think is the problem when you get into that kind of weird winky <laughs> territory yeah i mean I, I think too it really dates the movie after a while if you uh, you know if you repeat watch movies like you did obviously with this one yes um, I, I think that that joke runs, those kind of jokes run really thin um, and it makes the movie less timeless. Yeah. And I think that's where you do start to get a little bit of a problem in The Force Awakens, because when they are at the sort of resistance briefing talking about how to destroy Starkiller base and Han's like, how do you blow it up? There's always a way to do that. At that point, it's like, <laughs> oh my God, like that's not even comedy. That's almost like J.J. Abrams like shining a big spotlight on his own lack of imagination. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, you touched on one thing that really irked me this, this viewing and, and previous times, which is um, I love Han Solo. I think Harrison Ford does a tremendous job of, with it. Uh, but he has a couple moments that are really stupid. Uh, and, and, and I, I think it's nitpicking, but I'm going into it anyway. Um, I hate that he grabs Chewbacca's bowcaster and is like, Hey, you mind if I try this? We've been friends for 50 years, but I've never touched this before. Now I'm going to try it right now for some reason. Ooh, I got to get me one of these. Like that kind of thing. It's sort of that, that winking and nodding to the audience. Like, this is what you want to see, isn't it? It really pisses me off that when he takes the bowcaster, he says, Oh, I like this thing. And it's like, dude, 
You guys have been friends for decades. You know it's called a, a bowcaster. You know, just call it a bowcaster. Yeah, you son of a bitch. You know. <laughs> you know all these dumb little names for things. I, I also do... One thing I would also critique about Han's journey in this film is that I really hate how in the sequel trilogy, both Luke and Han both have to have some kind of melodramatic arc where they, they each in their respective films in this trilogy start out as apathetic. And by the end, they sort of become more like the heroes we knew in the original trilogy. And I find that so tiresome. It's like, Oh, we're just going to undo who they were so that we, they can become what they were again then it'll be a big moment i i get really sick of that kind of thing yeah it's sort of the obvious thing like okay yeah. so some time has passed so now they're jaded like everyone else like batman and then they're not jaded <laughs> it, it seems easy and i feel like it comes from this mistaken i idea that every single character has to have some big dramatic character arc but you look at the mentor figures in the original trilogy you look at obi-wan and yoda neither of them had some kind of arc, those characters kind of just were, and yet they were still incredibly complex and emotional and fascinating and nuanced and, you know, beautiful to behold. So, I mean, imagine if in, you know, New Hope, like Luke comes to see Obi-Wan and Obi-Wan's like, Luke, I don't care anymore. And you and Luke's like, oh man, get off your ass and help the rebels. It's like that would just be so so dumb and tiresome, and it's no. dumb and tiresome in the sequels. I think. I think you you hit it the nail on the head of why so many modern movies don't work for me, and it's uh, they feel uh, formulaic uh, from a writing perspective because no longer is it just the hero's journey and this is the wizard that helps him on this journey, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now it's Every character has to have motivation, which is fine, and they have to have a um, an arc that has a resolution. Yeah, uh, and I, and you see it with uh, with a lot of ensemble stuff, like the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels, where everybody has a thing to do and they do it and they've completed their arc, but the, overall the movie just isn't satisfying. Well, and I get the impulse to show a, a character we're familiar with in a fresh situation and shake things up, but there are other ways. Of doing that like terminator 2 did this incredibly well by starting out with sarah connor in an insane asylum and that wasn't saying oh suddenly sarah doesn't care about fighting the machine she's lost her will no she's you know pretty much the same person we left off with in terminator 1 just you know stronger and more driven she still has the same sense of purpose but she's encountered a serious setback in that quest. So that was a way of putting the character in a new situation without basically making her a new character, you know? Yeah. And it's smart. Um, I, I think like obstacles are great. Obviously a character has to overcome an obstacle to, to make uh, a compelling story. And the obstacle can be as small as, you know, in anything really. What, what I guess what I'm trying to say is um, they use the, you are the obstacle. Your mind is the obstacle too much. Yes. You know what I mean? It, Absolutely. It's like um, every character doesn't need to to be that way, and it seems like too many of them are. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. I think that's a really good point. I mean, what, what would have been wrong with uh, 
you know, Han starting out in The Force Awakens is, you know, oh, he hasn't gone back to smuggling. He's off looking for Kylo because he wants to save his son or something like that. Right. That would have made so much more sense. It would have been a much, you know, more natural evolution of the Han we last saw in Return of the Jedi. He could still be older and and jaded, but then it's not like, oh, we're just going to turn him back into the, the smuggler. I mean, I, I really hate that line where he says, I went back to the only thing I was ever good at. It's like, what are you talking about? You helped blow up the Death Star. I, I didn't really think about it until this viewing, but it's sort of my same problem with uh, Last Jedi, and we'll get into that you know, in a couple of weeks. But um, it's taking a character who has grown and, and has uh, you know tackled all these obstacles and reverting them back to the beginning again. And, and they make Han like such a cynical a-hole when in Return of the Jedi, I feel like he's really like really evolved. Why can't we see what that evolved version of Han Solo looks like? Why does he have to go back to square one again? And I'm sure that people listening to this, or at least some people, are, are thinking, well, that's realistic. A lot of times in life, people do kind of go backwards emotionally. Sure. And I'll grant that that's true. But the problem is that for us as viewers, seeing characters go in circles is just boring. It's just not good storytelling. It's not good entertainment. You know, we're, we're not going uh, to Star Wars for like pure hardcore realism. We're, we're going to Star Wars to see interesting stories and see characters, you know, grow and evolve in interesting ways. And I, I think they really missed an opportunity by, you know, kind of using the Force Awakens sort of un to undo a lot of stuff that happened in the original trilogy. I, I really wanted to see what the New Republic was going to be like at the height of its powers and what kinds of challenges, you know, that organization would face, you know, turning a rebellion into a galactic government. And instead, like, in two seconds, they're like, psych, the Republic's gone, and we're basically left with a mirror image of the conflict we had in the original trilogy. It's just... That, that's when you're getting into like kind of wearying territory and it's just this again you know and i i know like some people like that some people like to throw around you know big words like manichaean <laughs> to you know <laughs> justify that kind of thing but to me it's just kind of uh kind of leaves me like worn out and depressed <laughs> yeah no if i think about it too much it, it it is sort of like going back to a bad relationship Yes. And you're like, I haven't changed either. <laughs> if these people haven't changed. <laughs> um, what did you think of Leia in this movie in particular? Okay, uh, brace yourself. I'm actually going to praise Ryan Johnson here. <laughs> <laughs> That's I think... a spoiler for uh, two weeks from now. <laughs> yeah. You know, as much as I love J.J. Abrams, and uh, as much as I think J.J. Abrams is really good with actors... I think Ryan Johnson was better at directing Carrie Fisher than J.J. Abrams was. I, I feel that in The Force Awakens, Carrie Fisher was kind of stiff. And in mm -hmm. The Last Jedi, she seems so, you know, loose and relaxed and kind of off the cuff and, you know, more like the Leia we remember from the original trilogy in Last Jedi. And I know that she actually helped Ryan Johnson with the writing of the script for The Last Jedi, like he actually hung out with her and stuff uh, at her house, I believe, with, uh, you know, Debbie Reynolds and yeah, other folks. Yeah, that's my understanding is they sort of developed a friendship. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, I, you know, look, 
it's always great to see, you know, uh, Carrie Fisher's lay, especially as she's no longer with us. And, and I, I do like seeing her in the, the force awakens. And I love, you know, seeing her in that, you know, kind of awesomely ridiculous blue costume telling Ray, may the force be with you at the end. But, but I actually like last Jedi Leia a bit better. So yeah, there's, there's my nice Ryan Johnson thing for today. <laughs> no, I agree completely. And we'll get into Ryan Johnson later. And I generally love him. I feel like um, she sort of is just a figure. Leia is sort of just a figure in uh, Force Awakens. I don't really feel like she is moving me other than looking sad like when Han dies and things like that. It's like, I don't want to say it's a missed opportunity, but I, I don't, I feel like she's there because Leia is supposed to be there, not because she's really um, helping propel the story. I think that's true. I, and I know that there were some earlier scenes with, Leia and some stuff on the uh, Republic planet Hosnia Prime that they they cut and it'd be cool to see that stuff someday. I, I think the only moment for me where I was like, oh my gosh, Leia is officially back, is when Han's like, some things never change, and she says, true, you still drive me crazy. It's like, oh yeah, that <laughs> that feels like the same couple we knew in Empire and Jedi. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, that's fair. I I think maybe I'm just mad at the whole like assumption that they're like well obviously they got together and had a kid and then they got divorced because true love doesn't exist blah 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 yeah <laughs> I, I, don't, I, know, I, I don't like the too. way that played out and, and that just falls in line with all my uh, criticism with the movie yeah it's very it's very very frustrating i mean again i think the the eu did this better you know obviously things got a little fucked up there where you know, they had three children and one got killed and one <laughs> turned to the dark side. But it, at least we got to see Han and Leia as, as kind of a, a quote unquote nuclear family for a long time. And, and that was nice. That was reaffirming to see. And, and then, I don't know, it's just it's just a bummer to get to them in this and have them arguing. And also, I, I hate how this movie makes me mad at Leia because... Her being like, if you see our son, bring him home. And it's like, oh no, she's the one who sends Han to his death. That just yeah, clearly sucks so it's much. her fault because Han couldn't say no. I, I gotta disagree <laughs> with that. I think Han was gonna be the hero regardless. But that's that's fair. But, that's fair. But but that line is one other problem. One of the many other problems I have with the movie, uh, which is to say, um, they overspell out certain things far too much. They don't let it naturally happen or don't let the audience try to figure it out. And I know you can make the argument that this is sort of kind of a movie for kids or whatever. But uh, there's just moments where uh, they really didn't need to spend the amount of time they do explaining stuff. Yeah. Uh, and the, the one that bugged me the most is when uh, Snoke is talking um, to Kylo Ren. And, and uh, he says, it is in the hands of your father. Han Solo. <laughs> oh <my laughs> and it would have been way cooler if he just said, it's in the hands of your father. And then for the next 20 minutes, you're like, wait, which character were they talking about? Is that Han Solo maybe? Oh, that would be cool. Or, you know, yeah, like make yeah. it more of a mystery. Make the audience put the pieces together. Instead, it's like the hands of your father, Han Solo. Remember him? Anyone? Well, remember in The Empire Strikes Back, the Emperor's line to Vader was, the son of Skywalker must not become a Jedi. 
Whereas I feel like if, if JJ had directed that one, it'd be like, oh, the Emperor would just tell him, it's Luke, and he's your son. Right there, you know? No, exactly. The son is Skywalker. Luke Skywalker. Darth Vader's son. <laughs> of, of course, they did, you know, kind of screw that up in the uh, DVD, you know, Blu-ray version, where it's like, the young rebel who destroyed the Death Star. It's like, that's kind of pushing into that territory. But they didn't, they didn't go this full Snoke there, at least. <laughs> I never go full Snoke. <laughs> Kylo Ren gazes at Rey through the gleaming grill of his mask. You still want to kill me, he murmurs, a touch of amusement coursing through his heavily processed voice. That happens when you're being hunted by a creature in a mask, Ray replies haughtily. As if to say, ah, but I'm no creature, Kylo abruptly removes his helmet, revealing a cloud of dark curls and the pale, dagger-like features of Adam Driver. Ray remains disdainful, but there's something else in her expression. Is it surprise at her captor's oddly good looks? Bafflement at his eagerness to expose his visage, lust, Whatever the answer, that was the moment that Rayla was born. Whether you adore it or despise it, the fan subculture that obsessed over the possibility of a Ray-Kylo romance was a defining feature of the sequel trilogy era, a monster unleashed by J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson, neither of whom seemed to fully understand its kinky potential. For six movies, Star Wars had chronicled battles between boys and men. Yet in Kylo, Ray found a peer, a peer with whom she had an unholy chemistry. When Kylo interrogates her in The Force Awakens, the shackles that bind her don't look like standard sci-fi tech. They look like merchandise from a fan film called Fifty Shades of Star Wars. You know I can take whatever I want, Kylo taunts her. His dialogue is suggestive and sinister, but Rey refuses to give in. When Kylo tries to force his mind into hers, she fights back. You're afraid you'll never be as strong as Darth Vader, she declares. From the shaken look on Kylo's face, you know she's right. Kylo responds to his emasculation with feats of grotesquely macho showmanship. He bears his muscled chest to Rey in The Last Jedi and murders her father figure, Han Solo, with his phallic-looking lightsaber in The Force Awakens. In The Rise of Skywalker, he tells her, The dark side is in our nature. Surrender to it. Yet in the end, it is Kylo who surrenders, accepting that his role is to sacrifice himself to save Rey, not possess her. That resolution was doomed to infuriate both Raylos, who would settle for nothing less than wedding bells, and anti-Raylos, who viewed the relationship as icky and toxic. For my part, I'm at least grateful to Rey and Kylo for making Star Wars a little weirder and a little stranger. Maybe their bond was nothing more than one long starship crash, but it was never anything less than darkly fascinating. That took an interesting turn. I wasn't expecting <laughs> the, the, the Raylo shipping uh, talk. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, the talk. <laughs> the talk. I feel like I'm jumping ahead here with Rise of the, Sky Rise of the Skywalker. <laughs> I'm just combining all the movies. <laughs> yeah. I'm jumping ahead here with episode nine, but I feel like um, the romance doesn't come out of nowhere, but I don't feel like it's earned i think it feels like the writers wanted to have romance so it was going to happen regardless but i don't feel like it was was organic so to, for me I, I it bothers me just that they didn't really develop that other than like 
they had some forced talks and suddenly they're maybe in love. I mean, it, it bothers me and it doesn't bother me at the same time because I, I perceive a lot of the same flaws in it that you do. On the other hand, the whole Raylo thing was one of the few kind of organic things that came out of the sequel trilogy era. You know, it was weird. It was different. It was unique to these three films. It was the rare case where there had been nothing like it in any of the previous films. And, and I appreciate, appreciate it for that. I uh, appreciate it for uh, Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver's chemistry. I, I remember talking to a friend of mine after we saw the rise of Skywalker and he was like, you know, I don't get this Raylo thing. I don't even think they have chemistry. And I was like, whoa there, you know, we're clearly <laughs> living in two different universes here. But I, I think that part of the problem is that there was disagreement between J.J. Uh, Abrams and Ryan Johnson about what they wanted that relationship to be. Because I felt that, like, in The Force Awakens, that the kind of, like, creepy slash creepy romantic vibe emerged kind of naturally and, and kind of accidentally, frankly. And yeah. then I think the last Jedi, Ryan Johnson started really writing into it, but he also ended with Ray literally slamming the door in Kylo's face. You know, the implication being that at this point, Kylo is beyond redemption and she has to let go the idea of being able to, to save his soul. She can't do for him what, uh, Luke did for Vader. But then, of course, you get into the rise of Skywalker, and it's like, aha, but she can save him after all. And he does get his kind of, you know, redemptive <laughs> Vader-esque ending. So I, I think the biggest problem was inconsistency about what that relationship, you know, was meant to mean. Was it supposed to be this redemptive thing, or was, about, is, or was it more about there are times in life where you just have to walk away? and give up on someone. And I, God, I, I feel like I'm saying like a weirdly um, large amount of nice things about Ryan Johnson, but I do have to have one more. I, I thought his take on that relationship was, you know, a bit more original, even though I, I ended up being moved by Kylo's redemption and rise of Skywalker, just because I think Adam driver played it really well. And, you know, made me believe in it. And within the context of that particular film, I think it's sort of, highlights how they hadn't planned from start to finish this arc and they also wanted to give the audience everything they wanted including you know sort of a happy ending the bad guy dies but he's also redeemed and there's romance and kiss but he's dead because he's the bad guy it, it just to me it, it feels like they they didn't really think that out enough yeah yeah going to uh back to one of the things you said earlier you mentioned uh the phallus-like lightsaber of Kylo Ren. Uh, by that thinking, what does Rey using the lightsaber, you know, Luke's lightsaber, mean in the movie? I mean, I guess what I'm most interested in the fact is the fact that you know Kylo reaches for the lightsaber and isn't strong enough to take it, and uh, Rey uses the Force to bring it to her. I, I think the interesting symbolic weight of that image is that, you know, just that Kylo is never going to be as strong as Ray, you know, never going to be as, as powerful because he's not, he's not pure, you know, as, as Yoda says, you know, the, the dark side is, you know, quicker, easier, more seductive, but it's not 
stronger. So I, I think it speaks to that. But then again, in The Last Jedi, you have uh, Rey and Kylo, you know, fighting with the lightsaber caught between them. And then that time it splits in half. This repeated, you know, motif of them both fighting over the lightsaber, I think there are a couple things to it. I mean, there's a kind of like meta layer where it's almost like they're fighting over the legacy of Star Wars and each trying to claim it. But then I also think, you know, there is, you know, it, it, a sexual quality to it where, you know, it's it's sort of an emasculating moment for Kylo when Rey gets the saber and, you know, she's and, and he's not strong enough to take it. And this coming right after he has, you know, killed his own father with a with a lightsaber, you know, right in front of her, almost as if he's trying to, you know, prove his manliness to her and, and he keeps failing. And, and the only way he can have a relationship with her if only for a moment is when he, you know, stops trying to control her and, and just, you know, stands by her side as an equal. So I, I think that's kind of some of the things that are going on there. Oh, well said. Uh, switching gears a little bit, I will say uh, as much as I've, uh, talked about all my disappointments uh you know a couple of things i really like that we haven't talked about uh for one uh the finn and poe uh relationship i was really hoping that they became more of a dynamic duo it set it up to be that way and then it seems like it sort of um devolved after force awakens Um, yeah thoughts on that yeah i I think it did devolve I, i mean it was interesting, Ryan Johnson said that the reason he kind of split Poe and Finn up for most of The Last Jedi was because they liked each other, each other too much, so there wouldn't be conflict between them. But I, I think you could have found some conflict. I think there was a way to do that. And then in The Rise of Skywalker, they do the kind of the opposite tack, where they come up with a very, you know, fake, manufactured conflict where, you know, Poe is like, I'm not Leia, and Finn's like, that's for damn sure. It kind of reminded me of the sort of, you know, stupid clash between Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon over whether or not to train Anakin in the Phantom Menace. Like, it it just feels like, oh, insert conversation where they're mad at each other so they can kiss and 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 also, it's like we talked about earlier, it's that that you, yourself, you are the obstacle, and you have to get past your emotional baggage to, to, you know, reach uh, a point of character completion or whatever yeah it's like there because they needed to have conflict but it doesn't feel organic at all totally in that one totally yeah and honestly like i was always a big uh poe and finn shipper you know i always thought that you know john boyega and oscar isaac had really really good chemistry as as more than just like kind of fellow allies in the resistance and i think it would have been cool if that was a a romance, you know, I think it would have been cool in general if there were more, you know, LGBTQ characters in Star Wars than just, you know, two women kissing in the background in the, the Rise of Skywalker. I think I think my kind of like ideal, you know, ships for, you know, the, the series ending would have been Poe and Finn get together and Ray and Rose get together. And, and then you actually give Rose something to do other than just like read off technical specs and stuff. So, <laughs> so that that was that was my you know kind of like fan dream and and obviously it didn't happen in fact the kind of opposite happened because they had that 
stupid flirtation between Poe and, and Zori, which was really a shame and I think really did a disservice to Zori because she was actually, I think, a, a cool character and it kind of cheapened her to have this, you know, dumb, like, flirty vibe with Poe that felt just, like, out of nowhere. I, I think for me, I, I don't really go to Star Wars for the romance of it all. Like, like obviously, especially in the original trilogy of Han and, and Leia and, and Luke, sort of, <laughs> for a little while. And that that's sort of compelling, but I... Um, I guess that's not what I want out of the Star Wars movies. But having said that, yeah, how crazy would that have been if Finn and Poe kiss at the end? And yeah. All of Middle America, uh, no offense, Middle America, um, freaks <laughs> out and boycotts Star Wars. I, you know, I, and and you can tell me if this uh, is 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 not true, Josh. But is it possible that the reason that you don't go to Star Wars for the romance is because we've so rarely seen romance done well in star wars because i feel that han and leia is the only like well done romance in the whole uh saga or at least the films and i feel like if there were like more romances that were uh, effective like that could really be powerful and like add another dimension i think we just we don't, there isn't just the problem is there just isn't much precedent and i feel like it's kind of like again, like talking about like wanting more freshness, like that's a fresh thing you could do. Like see more, you know, love stories and, and see love stories that are, are different from Han and Leia. I think that Star Wars is ultimately sort of a kid movie or a kid fantasy, and so it's not a kissy movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's my take on it. Is is I think it's great to have some some romance. But uh, it's something I would rather see explored in one of the new TV shows um, where it's sort of like that that's the focal point. Because um, I, I, think, I think they could definitely add something more, but I, I don't think that's the main reason people are going to go and see a Star Wars. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, I'll say this. I think Star Wars always has to primarily be about friendship because that's in star Wars's DNA, you know, it's brothers and sisters in arms, you know, fighting against evil. It's, you know, Han, Luke and Leia becoming friends for life and in a new hope. But, but I, I still think that, you know, I, I do want to see more romances and, and star Wars. Cause I, I think there's a lot of untapped potential. And also I would argue that like, like, yes, it's like, yes, they're kids movies, but you know, even kids who like, you know, watch a movie and see kissing are like, ooh, you, that's gross. Like, I mean, <laughs> secretly, we all know, you know, just like we were as kids that like, you're kind of fascinated, you know, even if you're, you know, yeah. outwardly repulsed. And I think it's cool. I think it's cool that Star Wars is starting to normalize that women can also be powerful, autonomous characters that aren't just sex objects. And that that people of all races and creeds and and beliefs can be in the universe. So I do think seeing more of that is is great. I think it's cool that a kid could see themselves in the Star Wars movie and it's not necessarily a blue-eyed white kid. Yeah. I think yeah. that's wonderful and and maybe what you're touching on a little bit. Um but I I don't know. Um I I think you're onto something, but I I don't personally need a ridiculous amount of romance because because that's not why i go and see most movies 
Well, I, I do. I do like the and love is dead. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> no, but I, I do like the point you make about like just you know, seeing different kinds of of characters. And, you know, it, it's great that we have Ray. It's great that we have Daisy Ridley. But there was, you know, there are so many, you know, women who are such an important uh, force, if you will, in the Star Wars fan community. And it was like long past time by the time The Force Awakens came along you know, to have a, a woman whose whose journey would be front and center. And, and the great thing, I think, is just as there were women who probably related to Luke, I think there are men who relate to Ray, And it, it just opens up things on, on so many levels. And I think that's, you know, exciting. It makes things more interesting. It makes things more fun, frankly. Definitely. Definitely. Well, uh, I think we'll have to leave it there. I think we'll have to devote an entire episode to uh, Star Wars romance because I think we have a lot more to talk about. Yes. <laughs> do you have anything else uh, you want to talk about Force Awakens-wise? No, but I, I want to do some voices. Oh, yes. I'm totally prepared. So I, I have two. I have, a, I have a serious line and a funny line. I'm going to do both. Oh, that sounds great. I mean, you could do, yeah, do it for the both of us. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So here, here's the first one. No, the supreme leader is wise. Well, and then uh, in honor of my Scottish roots, I just have to do, and Solo, you're a dead man. <laughs> That's so good. I, I confess I can't do a Scottish accent at all, but I drink scotch. And so uh, I always watch the videos <laughs> on like scotch tasting. They'll have like this attractive 20-something Scottish dude come out and he'll say, this is Aberlawa. Uh, this is Abuna. <laughs> and, and so basically, um, my, my Scottish accent has devolved into me just pronouncing different scotches. <laughs> As viewers will, will know by now, I hope, uh, I can't do accents. I think I'm going to break from tradition, and I'm uh, not doing a voice in protest. I, I have no good voices. I can't think. I, I, I'm, I've been internet searching like, Okay, what's a really good voice? One quarter portion. <laughs> okay, there we go. I've done my contractually obligated uh, 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah, see, see, you did it. <laughs> this was uh, this was super fun. I've been looking forward to getting to the sequel trilogy because as, as much as we shit on it, there is a lot of cool stuff. And there's a more importantly, there's a lot of really interesting ideas and issues and controversies to chew over. And that's all, you know, part of the fun about talking about Star Wars. It's made me appreciate the sequel trilogy a little bit more, you know, going back and rewatching it, but also sort of when I think about it too hard, it's like, Oh, I, I remember why this, I remember why this isn't exactly, you know, Star Wars, so to speak. Oh, and, and can I, can I make a, a quick, uh, self-promotion i wrote an article uh that's on my blog thmoviereviews.wordpress.com and it's the 10 greatest scenes from the sequel trilogy so check it out i'll you know i'll, I'll repost it on twitter or something so it's easier to find tho bennett yeah and you can find me on twitter at i am josh o 85 um, you can also hear us together occasionally on the Spidey Scenes podcast, where Ben delves into Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. 
Uh, that's it for us. Have a great week, and the Force will be with you. Always. <laughs>